But like, why does everyone have allergies now anyway? I get asked that question at least once a day. I started a company to help parents prevent food allergies in their babies about four years ago. So in that time, I have talked to at least 10,000 parents-to-be, investors, and just random people who wanted to know what I do for a living. After I explain about the company, inevitably, someone says, but like, why does everyone have allergies anyway? Six years ago, I was asking that same question. It started with my son's first trip to the emergency room. We gave him a simple scrambled egg, something I had eaten every day while breastfeeding, and then watched in horror as hives started just spreading across his face and body. He couldn't talk yet because he was only 11 months old, but I remember the way he looked at me like, what is happening? What, what did you do? After the doctors gave him a bunch of medicine and his reaction calmed down, they gave us a prescription for an EpiPen, told us he would likely need it for the rest of his life, that he should never eat eggs again, and sent us home, stunned and confused. That experience is incredibly common. My name is Dr. Trill Pollen. I'm a molecular biologist. I have a background in cancer research and proteomics, and I happen to have two little girls who reacted to proteins transferred to my breast milk to the extent of having to be admitted to the hospital. My last year of grad school, I was finishing up writing my dissertation, and we decided to start our family. We had our oldest daughter, and she had awful colic. She screamed all of the time. And so we took her in to the pediatrician and said, like, you know, she cries constantly. And like, I don't think the bags under my eyes can get any bigger. Can you help us? And we were just told, like, no, she has colic and good luck with that. And high five and sent home. So I really felt alone in this, like, thought of maybe, maybe it's me. Like, maybe I'm just weird that, you know, I'm really concerned that my daughter seems to be in pain. Almost 15% of babies are diagnosed as having colic. But it's actually a nonsense diagnosis. All it means is that your baby cries for three hours a day, more than three days a week, despite being healthy. If your baby was crying because of an ear infection, they would call it that. So colic basically means that something is wrong with your kid and the doctor doesn't know what. So fast forward a few more weeks of that, and we woke up to find her completely covered in a rash with several bloody diapers, one after another after another. And I was terrified. So I took her back to the pediatrician and said, okay, now I think it's a little something more than colic. Like, can we dig into this? And really still got kind of that flippant attitude of like, yeah, you know, maybe consider removing cow's milk protein from your diet. That might help. Otherwise there's this hypoallergenic formula and that's it sent home. And I was just kind of flabbergasted. Like, like that's, that's all like she's bleeding profusely. That's it. So I went home and I did that. I cut cow's milk protein from my diet. I was breastfeeding and she just continued to spiral. It got worse and worse. Eventually I was given a referral to a gastroenterologist. Then I was told, well, your, your breast milk is poisoning your baby. And I was just, and it was super hard for me because breastfeeding was already not easy. And so I felt like I was just finally getting the hang of it. And then to be told that my breast milk was killing my baby essentially was just, it was awful, quite honestly. They said, you know, your only option is to switch to this hypoallergenic formula. And um, starting to dig in on this, okay, like, tell me more about the formula. Like, what does this look like? What, what are we doing? 
as I come to find out that one, the formula is made out of corn syrup. Two, it smells like sweaty gym socks. And three, it costs $50 a can. And I was just like, like, is this the only option? There's no way that like corn syrup is the right choice right now. And then two, I'm not going to be able to afford that. So Trill was given hypoallergenic formula. I was given EpiPens. We were both just told, don't worry, this happens a lot. How much is a lot? Over 30 million Americans suffer from a food allergy. There are estimates that 80 million, or about one in four people, suffer from an immune disease, of which food allergy is only one. If you add up the eczema, psoriasis, IBS, allergies, asthma, type 1 diabetes, celiac, these conditions are basically everywhere. Here are some other mind-blowing statistics. Every three minutes, a food allergy sends someone to the ER. Ten Americans die every day from asthma. Between 2001 and 2009, there was a 21% increase in type 1 diabetes in children. Autism increased by 6 to 15% every year from 2002 to 2010. That's dozens of people getting sick and dying from an immune disease every day for the last 30 years. To put that number in perspective, there have been fewer than 40 million cases of COVID in the United States as of this recording. Imagine if faced with COVID, doctors had simply said, don't worry, we're seeing a lot of that these days. Because these diseases crept up on us over a generation or more, we just kind of dealt with them. We slowly boiled like the proverbial frog. But immune diseases touch nearly every family, every classroom, every workplace, and every event today. I'm not the only one startled by this change. Here are Dr. Julia Getzelman's thoughts. I would argue we are in a moment in human history where the way that medicine is practiced is not in concert with what we're seeing in terms of illness And it's unfortunate because we find ourselves at a time when the issues plaguing humans are no longer primarily infectious disease and trauma-based. What we're dealing with today, putting COVID aside, is a lot of chronic non-infectious illness, such as food allergy, eczema, asthma, autoimmunity, like Crohn's, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, celiac, you know, in in the adult population, chronic degenerative uh, neurologic conditions are, you know, hugely on the rise. So, so all of these chronic non-infectious conditions, many of which used to only plague adults and in small numbers are now not only plaguing adults in large numbers, but are beginning to enter into what is considered normal in the pediatric population, obesity, type two diabetes, and so the one ill, one pill model, I would, I would argue, is not helping. As Dr. Getzelman said, the one ill, one pill model just isn't helping. Doctors are seeing more and more immune disease, not just in adults, but in children. When each one is diagnosed, you're sent home with a prescription. But it's clearly not helping us get any healthier. A friend of mine put it this way. I read this amazing Instagram post. I don't remember who wrote it. She was saying your child's eczema is not due to a lack of steroid on their skin. So applying steroid to their skin is not the solution. And I was like, oh, that was a light bulb moment for me. Like, 
he's not suffering from a lack of steroid and it's not good for his system generally to depend on that. I don't want prescriptions. I want to know how to fix my kid and how to keep other kids from getting sick in the first place. We are never going to do that if we can't even understand what immune diseases are or how they happen. As so many people have asked me, but like, why does everyone have allergies? After spending years researching immune disease, both to try to find a cure for my son and for my work, I'm constantly struck by the incredible gap between what doctors and scientists know about allergic and immune disease and what the average parent knows. The gap in understanding is like doctors are using iPhones while the average parent is still trying to send smoke signals. Here's something you probably didn't know. Eczema, asthma, and food allergies are actually the same disease, and most doctors now agree that you have to, and can, treat them all together. I want to say that again. Eczema, asthma, and food allergies are basically the same disease. Is your mind blown? In this series, I want to bring you out of the darkness and a little bit closer to the light. I've had the fortune over the last few years, given my line of work, to meet and speak with some of the leading researchers in immune diseases. I want you to hear directly from them how close we are to unraveling immune disease. While they don't have all the answers yet, medical research does take a long time, we're not in the dark ages here. You're going to hear from people who specialize in immune diseases of the skin, immune diseases of the lungs, and immune diseases of the gut. You'll also get to hear directly from some immunologists and microbiome researchers, allergists dealing with treatments, and doctors working on ways to prevent immune disease. My hope is that if you started today thinking, but like, why do so many people have allergies? You leave this series, one, knowing what happened to cause all this disease, two, what is actually going on in the bodies of people who have these diseases, and three, what you can do about it. Many people listening to this podcast are here because they have an immune disease or love someone who does. But for those of you who don't fit into either group, I want to start the series by helping you understand what it's like to have an immune disease. It is not benign. My name is Amy Pruitt, and I have two little boys who are two years old and four years old, and they're amazing. And they both have eczema, and one of them also has food allergies. He's allergic to peanuts and tree nuts that we know of. Uh, no one else in the family had eczema. Nobody in the family has food allergies. Nobody in my husband's family has eczema or food allergies. But when my first son was, gosh, about two months old, six weeks old, he uh, had this rash kind of all over. I mean, all kids have, you know, the baby acne and the cradle cap and all that stuff. So he had all of that. But his skin was all red and around his face, around his mouth was all red. And we took him in and pediatrician was like, oh yeah, he has eczema. He's fine. He has eczema. We're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so, you know, what do we do? So that kind of started us on the whole eczema journey with, you know, extra moisturizer and cotton clothes and all that sort of thing, trying to keep his skin moisturized and, and avoid irritants. At the time we weren't told, nor did we know that this meant that he would be more at risk for food allergies or asthma or anything like that. So we rolled on. He had a moderate case. I'd say maybe if, you know, a scale from one to 10, 10 being the worst, I'd say his peaked at around a four maybe. And then little bro came along two years and one day later. And little bro had 
way worse eczema out of the gate. They were both diagnosed around the same time, around six weeks old. And his was just all over, just face, trunk, limbs, hands, feet, everywhere. And his, his on the same scale, his is around a seven, I'd say. I mean, he's been sent home from daycare for eczema. Did you know you could be sent home from daycare for eczema? Because what he would do, what he would is, is he would scratch his skin. They both scratched their skin till it bled. But the problem with Bodie, the younger one, is that they couldn't keep a Band-Aid on him. And so if you're, it's like a state rule. It's completely understandable. This is even pre-COVID. If you're bleeding all over the toys, they can't have you <laughs> at school with the other kids and they, if they can't keep a Band-Aid on him. So he's been sent home multiple times for his skin. When your child is given a diagnosis, doctors first talk you through what to do and then just send you home. Your friends and family always express condolences, but rarely do they understand how hard chronic immune diseases are to live with. Here's Amy talking about how she deals with her son's eczema. Eczema can have unavoidable triggers, like pollen, cleaning products, or perfumes, and so it can be nearly impossible to keep a kid's skin calm. The doctors have always been super nonchalant with, with regards to the eczema. The younger one's eczema is way more problematic and way more time-consuming. We... We, we call it lubing him up. We lube, we lube the baby from head to toe twice a day with, with a full-on greasy emollient, like a Vaseline style thing. And I mean, it's time consuming. We wet wrap him every night because we know to, and nothing makes it go away. He hasn't had a day of, he hasn't had an eczema free day in his life. You know, unless you count the, the first couple weeks of his life, he hasn't had a day without eczema. We, so we do this whole ritual where whether or not he has a bath that day, head to toe, emollient everywhere, and then we get the PJs wet. We do the long, the long sleeve, long jammies, get them wet in warm water, wring them out, put those on him, which takes skill and practice, and it's not fun if a toddler is fighting you when you're trying to put wet PJs over their sticky, greasy <laughs> limbs. The eczema, is, it's, it's time consuming. It's more a hassle. It's expensive. We've recently fallen in love with this really expensive, handmade, uh, small batch, all natural eczema uh, care cream that's like, you know, different oils and beeswax and honey and all these things. And it's terrific. And a, a, a jar of it'll cost you $24 and it lasts us almost a month. I mean, it's, it's expensive and it's time consuming. We're lucky in that he doesn't keep himself awake scratching very much. I know there are lots of kids where sleep is a major factor. We've been lucky that we haven't had problems at bedtime. It's more just he wakes up in the morning and the first thing he does is start going town on him, you know, on himself, scratching himself. And then, of course, you know, when he gets sent home from school for bleeding all over the place, it's a problem. Despite all this effort, if Amy's son wears long sleeve clothing to school, you might never know that there was anything wrong with him. Most kids dealing with an allergic or immune disease don't even look ill. Here's my sister-in-law, Marina, talking about her regimen of keeping my nephew alive. He was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was only three years old. Hi, my name is Marina. I'm from Westchester, New York, and I have a son uh, with type 1 diabetes. So he was three years old, little kid, and he had gotten like a cold or a virus or something. So he got very sick and 
and I take him to the doctor and basically they just gave us some antibiotics and didn't pick up on anything else. And I do remember giving him these antibiotics and he, he broke out in a rash and then, but he was very thirsty a lot. So he had some of the classic symptoms of being very thirsty, very hungry and peeing a lot. So at that time, that weekend, I was like, I knew, uh, I knew that something was definitely wrong. And that was my biggest suspicion was diabetes, even though we had no family history or anything like that. So I had made an appointment when we came back that Monday to go to the doctor. And then they, you know, they, they test your finger and they get, they measure, you know, your blood sugar. And if it's, uh, and his was very, very high. I think he was like 800 or something, which is the miracle that you know, he didn't pass out or something like that. So we, I think we just, we did it like in the nick of time. And then they admit him. And I mean, we were very fortunate that we were at Columbia and they have the Naomi Berry Diabetes Center, which is one of the best places you can go to in the country, I think. And so right away the team came and, you know, they gave him this little bear, like a stuffed bear. And on the bear, it's like he had like, little patches where you can check his blood sugar. <laughs> so they're trying to explain this to Ben. And I mean, it was, you know, it was very painful and very like emotional. And basically they were, when you first get diagnosed, you don't get an insulin pump or anything like that. You just give yourself injections. and he's three years old. And so he's this like tiny little guy. And so you have to learn how to, like in the syringe, make these tiny, tiny amounts of insulin. And every time he eats, you have to give him a shot. And then he also has a shot of a long lasting insulin called Lantus in the morning. But it's so scary because you don't eat, God forbid you give him too much insulin and he could pass out or die or something. And I just remember thinking, there's no way that I can do this. Like the, I, I, it was, it was just a whirlwind of of craziness and, and, you know, all of a sudden learning about syringes and insulin and how to, you know, prick your kids with this stuff and how to check his blood sugar all the time. And It actually only got harder from here. It's, it's tough. It's like with diabetes, like you can eat the same thing every day, have the same routine, but your blood sugar numbers are all over the place. It's just, it's just like, it's like a broken, you know, those little tile puzzles where you move the numbers around it's like that but it's just broken you can never get it <laughs> in the right order so you just experiment a lot I mean I, I think I you know he, he certainly didn't have a very high carb uh, diet so we experimented a lot you know so we didn't have to give him too much insulin because that was always the worry the worry was more that he would go have low blood sugar rather than too high so we would just do anything we could think of just to not get him to be, you know, too low. So not too high carbs, but yeah, we, I, we would check his blood sugar. You know, you get a little meter, you have to prick his finger and we'll give you the number. And we probably checked him, I would say every two hours just to, just to make sure that he was in a normal range. It was never a perfect number or anything like that, but it was just like not too low, not too high. That helps a lot. That gives you some peace of mind because you can just check and make sure that, okay, he's Okay. But every time he would, you know, exercise, it would change the blood sugar, stuff like that. And then, of course, you have to check him through the night, too, because at night, everything changes again. 
it's very hard, especially when they were little, to have a sort of stable number during the night. <clears throat> so I woke up you know, probably every two to three hours and checked. And I would check like his toes so I wouldn't wake him. But often I would have to wake him up to give him some juice to get it back up. And then you have to check again in like an hour. So did not sleep for, for years. <laughs> Every year, more than 18,000 kids in the United States will develop type 1 diabetes, the deadly disease just described. As a comparison, about 1,000 children die each year from drowning. Almost 25% of kids are diagnosed with eczema. That's more kids than will get the flu. Immune diseases have become frighteningly common, and they are devastatingly difficult to manage. You understand how viruses work, how bacterial infections happen, and you have probably organized your life to reduce the chances of getting sick. Isn't it time the average person understood immune disease and how not to get them? Shouldn't you already know why so many kids have allergies? We start next time on Fixing Sick. Fixing Sick was written and produced by me, Mina Lele. Audio engineering was done by Chris Whitmore. The opinions I state in this podcast are my own. My guests only said what they said, and any mistakes are totally my own.